Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Counterspin, The New York Times, Rachel Maddow, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This is Jane Huber from The Young Turks. You're listening to the Best of the Left podcast. Big story today, and, and it comes with an enormous shock to me, and I'm sure to all of you. I know everybody here at The Young Turks studios were... I mean, we took a good hour to just do, like, silent meditation to recover from the news. It turns out President Bush is a liar. Uh, I I didn't see this one coming. That's why it's kind of a big blow, you know. Who, who would have figured? Washington Post breaking the story today. Uh, May 29th, President Bush comes out and says, We have found the weapons of mass destruction in 2003. It's about two months after we invaded. And 28 days after the goofy landing on the Abraham Lincoln aircraft carriers with the mission accomplished. Chad, we rock! Mission accomplished! Thank God this war's over. (laughs) That was May 1st of 2003. We're almost coming up on the three-year anniversary of mission accomplished. Now, uh, on May 29th, 28 days later, it comes out and says, that's it. Everybody, not only did we get to win the war, just relax. It turns out we were right. Uh, we have found the weapons of mass destruction. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute, I thought there were no weapons of mass destruction. How how did he figure that back then? Well, now we find out. The way he figured it is, he lied. <laughs> so when he came out and announced that he found the weapons of mass destruction, he wasn't telling the truth? I am. Um, yeah, I know. I know. You know what? Let's let's meditate. <laughs> Help me out. Bring, bring me back to three years ago, almost. Was it three years ago, almost, that he found him? Well, right after the invasion, nearly. Just like right. two months after the invasion. That's right. What proof did he show us that he had found the weapons? Or was it just a blanket announcement, kind of like mission accomplished, and then it all died away? Well, here's a quote. We have found the weapons of mass destruction. And the, There's no ambiguity about it. That's it. We found it. It's over. Thank did he, God. Did he tell us what kind of weapons, where they were, what's oh, being sure, done with them? Sure. sure. They were mobile biological weapons labs. I mean, they were very high tech, and they would move them throughout the desert, and they had them on these trailers, and we found the trailers, and they that's it. That's where they were making the biological weapons. They were hiding them, and et cetera. So uh, mission accomplished. Now, the problem comes in with the fact that in May 27th of 2003, two days before his big announcement that we found the WMD, two days before, he had already received an analysis by eight American scientists and a British scientist, nine uh, guys in total who had gone there and who checked out, meticulously checked out those biological weapons labs that were mobile, high-tech in Iraq. <laughs> Turned out they had written a report saying they are definitely not biological weapons labs. They are not the weapons of mass destruction. Don't say they are. And one of the at the end of the Washington Post piece, one of the scientists says, of course, they all have to be off the record, otherwise they'll be fired instantly. How dare you reveal what is true? We've been trying to hide that stuff for years now. Lying to the American people, that's what we do. you trying to foil our attempts to do that? So he says at the end of the article, anonymously, He's like, I, we did our job, and then we came back home, and I assumed that it was going to be public in a couple of days. Oh, it turns out that those things, you know, I don't know anything about anything else, but those things that we went to check out were not uh, biological weapons labs. Instead, what he found out was the president going on TV, not only on May 29th, but for a series of months, uh, the president, the vice president, Rumsfeld, they're all going on and saying, that's it, we found the weapons of mass destruction. It was those biological weapons labs that the, our scientists checked out. 
the uh, and and of course uh, at several points after the team they, they transmitted their report on May 27th in the early hours. I was like, it's very tight. They, they, you know, they like, it's like old school. They like teletype it back to Washington. You know, and then of course it comes back to Washington. <laughs> Does it have to make that noise? Otherwise, nobody knows what it is. Right. right. Or nobody knows it's coming. You in. can't just send an email these days, right? No. <laughs> Captain, quickly, come here. The teletype is coming in. Very good, Johnson. Um, so they they take in the teletype on May 27th, and the president speaks two days later. Then and then the the guys. It was a British and American uh, intelligence team, and then they come back home to the states after that. And then, but a couple days later, the CIA publishes its paper. Um, uh, which, if I'm not mistaken, specified this or contradicted it. It contradicted it. Right. And so then, th- right. So that that's the way I have to clarify. We'll clarify that in right. a second. Okay. And then these guys, they, these members who spoke on condition of anonymity say at several points, members were questioned about revising their conclusions. So, I love that part. So they're like, yeah. Uh, and, like, and nobody says change it. They're like, could you soften it? Maybe a little bit. Maybe say, you know, the part where you say that there's no biological weapons. Could you say maybe that there, are, there are biological weapons? <laughs> just, just soften it a soften little, little bit. bit. Just a little bit. The, he said, and the, the 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 members who spoke here say the questioners generally wanted to know the same thing. Could the report's conclusions be softened to leave open a possibility that the trailers might have been intended for weapons? <laughs> just make it you know, possible. Now these guys, you have to understand, they every single one of this nine uh, member team had over 10 years of experience in biological weaponry, <laughs> okay? So if anybody knows how to put together biological weapons, it's these guys. And so they spent, you know, in a, they, the article explains that 110-degree weather, they spent hours, days checking it, uh, at least four hours in the first time, and they went back and meticulously checked where the pipes would be, what kind of bio- biological material they'd have to have. They looked at it, looked at it, looked at it, and thought, it's not even close. And one of the, uh, I love this quote, too, one of the scientists, they asked him, uh, well, as Ben said, couldn't this have been used for biological weapons if you were to change everything? If you were to take it completely apart and make it something else? Guys, like, says, um, actually, it'd be easier to start with a bucket. This isn't made for that. It's made for hydrogen for balloons. Yeah, so here- <laughs> you actually, what they should have said is, do you think we could have found intention? For WMD. Well, but right. that, I mean, that would have been a more plausible argument than, you know, trying to get them to just rephrase. We but, could have argued there was intention, and that's all that mattered. Right. Because uh, they did make they that... They had about it. Jill's <laughs> right, uh, because they made that argument at the very end when Dolfer and Kay, they came back and said, no, 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 zero WMD, zero, And I don't know right? if you remember the old, like, public service announcements on TV. What's the most powerful thing that you have? Your, Your brain. Your mind. Your mind. Um, true. Thoughts, and Do- thoughts are the most powerful thing here on the planet. And so they got Dolfer at the end of it. To, they Again, they asked him to soften, soften, I imagine, back behind doors. And then uh, Dolfer said, all right, look, you know what? There's zero WMD. They weren't even close. They weren't within decades of producing anything. But they might have thought about it, right? And so Jill, it, it goes to Jill's point. Hey, perhaps they thought about it at some point. You know, turning this into a biological weapons labs. But the guys, like, even if they thought about that, again, it would be easier to simple start with a buck. I just want to get to one really crucial point because some on the right are like, did you want to take that chance? Maybe it was. Maybe these guys were wrong. And I just want to read how sure they were. Okay. So Jenk mentioned the 110-degree heat. Using tools from home, they peered into vats, turned valves, tapped gauges, measured pipes. They reconstructed a flow path through feed tanks and reactor vessels, past cooling chambers and drain valves, and into discharge tanks and exhaust pipes. They took hundreds of photographs. By the end of their first day, 
right? And again, it took more than one day. Team members still had differing views about what the trailers were. They weren't sure. Except See, they were, there you go! They were all sure about one thing. They're like, okay. Uh, within the first four hours, said one team members, it was clear to everyone that these were not biological labs. Like, we don't know what they are. But they're not making weapons. That we're all sure of. And after a couple of days, they came to the conclusion they were making balloons. <laughs> The Valerie Plame story found its way back into the media last week as Special Prosecutor Patrick Fitzgerald filed new papers that shed a little more light on how the White House planned to undermine Iraq war critic and former Ambassador Joe Wilson. According to the court filing, Dick Cheney's former aide, Louis Libby, was instructed by the administration to leak portions of a classified national intelligence estimate in order to counter Wilson's claim that the White House's story of Iraq's attempts to get yellow cake uranium from Niger was unfounded. Some reporters shrugged it off, suggesting that everyone in Washington leaks information. As CBS Evening News reporter Gloria Borger put it on April 6th, quote, This is just one more opportunity for Democrats to charge the administration with hypocrisy. But, as one former intelligence official told me today, if hypocrisy were a crime in Washington, we'd have to build more jails, close quote. NPR analyst Daniel Shore summarized the story on April 8th by saying that the intelligence estimate, quote, came up with the possibility that there was indeed an attempt to buy uranium from the country of Niger, close quote. So the White House was very anxious to get that out. But that's deceptive. Some analysts did think there was something to the Niger story, but others vehemently disagreed. The White House wanted reporters to know only about the analysis that backed up their ultimately bogus case. But the Washington Post was the most passionate administration defender. Its April 9th editorial headlined, A Good Leak, argued the White House was right to go after Wilson since he was the one not telling the truth. Washington Post readers were surely confused to read in the same day's paper a long story reporting that the intelligence estimate did not say what the White House was saying it did. And since the White House itself long ago admitted it shouldn't have made the Niger claims at all, the Washington Post is left defending the administration on a claim even they no longer stand by. Now that's loyalty. I said, some of these folks have never been heard from again, right? Yep, said Kurt Goring, that's right. Mr. Goring is the Senior Deputy Executive Director for Policy and Programs at Amnesty International USA. We were discussing a subject, government-sanctioned disappearances, that ordinarily would repel most Americans. In past years, stories about torture and the disappeared have been associated with sinister regimes in South and Central America. The attitude in the United States was that we were above such dirty business, that it was immoral and uncivilized, and we were better than that. But times change, and we've lowered our moral standards several notches since then. Now people are disappearing at the hands of the U.S. government. 
Below the Radar, Secret Flights to Torture and Disappearance is the title of a recent Amnesty International report on the reprehensible practice of extraordinary rendition, a highly classified American program in which individuals are seized, abducted, without any semblance of due process and sent off to be interrogated by regimes that are known to engage in torture. Some of the individuals swept up by rendition simply vanish. This is a kind of netherworld that people disappear into and don't frequently emerge from, said Mr. Goring. It's a world that's outside the reach of law. These individuals might as well be on another planet. There's no way to know how many people have been seized, tortured, or killed. Since there are no official proceedings, there's no way to know whether a particular individual who's taken into custody is a legitimate terror suspect or someone who's innocent of any wrongdoing. But we have learned, after the fact, that mistakes have been made. You may not be familiar with the name Khaled el-Masri, but the Bush administration sure knows who he is. Mr. Masri, a German citizen of Lebanese descent, was arrested while visiting Macedonia in December 2003. A few weeks later, he was handed over to a group of masked men dressed all in black, in the so-called ninja outfits frequently worn by the rendition cowboys. Mr. Masri's clothes were cut off and he was drugged, put aboard a plane and flown to Afghanistan, where he was held in a squalid basement cell for five months. It turned out, as noted by Dana Priest of the Washington Post, who was awarded a Pulitzer Prize this week for her reporting on the government's covert counterterrorism programs, that the CIA had imprisoned the wrong man. Ms. Priest wrote, Mastry was held for five months, largely because the head of the CIA's counter-terrorist center's Al-Qaeda unit believed he was someone else, one former CIA official said. She didn't really know, she just had a hunch. Someone had a hunch that Maher Arar was a terrorist too. A Canadian citizen who had been born in Syria, he was snatched by American authorities at Kennedy Airport in New York on September 26, 2002, and shipped off to a nightmare in Syria that lasted nearly a year. He was held for most of that time in an underground, rat-infested cell about the size of a grave. No one, not even among the Syrians who tortured him, was ever able to come up with any evidence linking Mr. Arar to terrorism. He was released and returned to his family in Ottawa. Shunned and emotionally shattered, he seems a ruined man at just 35 years of age. The cases of Khalid el-Masri and Mar Arar are among the handful that we know about. Most cases remain concealed in the lawless netherworld that Mr. Goring spoke of. The Amnesty International report describes various acts of torture and other forms of mistreatment that are alleged to have been inflicted on victims of rendition. According to the report, Vincent Canistrero, a former director of the CIA's counterterrorism center, said the following about a detainee who had been rendered to Egypt. They promptly tore his fingernails out, and he started telling things. The Bush administration will never do the right thing when it comes to rendition. Congress needs to step in and thoroughly investigate this program, which is nothing less than a crime against humanity. Congress needs to investigate it, document it, and shut it down. So in July, uh, they're leaking class uh, classified information left and right to uh, prove their point. Hey, uranium. Are you kidding me? This Wilson guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Iraq was going to get uranium from Niger. We had to stop him. That's what our intelligence estimates say. Two problems. Two enormous problems with that. 
Number one, that is not what your national intelligence estimate told you. Uh, in fact, in the annex, they said the State Department is, quote, highly dubious about that. that that's Second of all, it was not a key finding, as, they, as Libby told the reporters. It was buried in the story. And with the caveat that it was highly dubious. The, the phrase that's uh, relevant here, and it's a phrase that means something to people in the policy world, is, is the term key judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, not key finding, but key judgment. And, and uh, Libby and the White House tried to sell it as a key judgment in the national intelligence estimate. A key judgment is the, by the way, they're not hard to find. They're in bullet points at the beginning. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and it was not a key judgment. Uh, it was not a key judgment because those in the intelligence community, it is very clear, didn't know whether it was true. And even if it were true, they'd be like, yeah, he's already got a lot of uranium and he'll get it from somewhere. If he, that, That's not even key to making a bomb. What is obviously key is that these uh, devilish people in the White House thought, let's talk about that because – the parts of how to make a, a nuclear weapon is difficult. It's technical. People don't know what the word enriching means. I don't even know what the word enriching means in regard to uranium. I don't know what that process is. But everybody knows here's uranium. And they think, ooh, I know, you need uranium to make a bomb. So they thought, let's emphasize that. All right. Now, if you say, hey, listen, guys, give the guys a break because I've been a Republican for 35 years and I can never change my mind. So I'm going to give them every benefit of the doubt and say, all right, fine, it wasn't a key judgment. That was an error. But it was in the report. Fine, you say there was uh, doubts about it. But at least it was in there and somebody thought it, so they leaked it. Okay, it was a little bit of cherry picking, but at least it was in the report somewhere. So when they leaked it in July, they thought, hey, honestly, we think he's trying to get uranium from Niger. But the only problem is when they started leaking it is not when they wrote the National Intelligence Estimate. They wrote the National Intelligence Estimate much earlier. And in the meanwhile, in March, we had definitive proof that they were not trying to acquire uranium from Niger. So in March of 2003, the month we invaded, we already know that was not true. We, every intelligence analyst in the country is saying not true, not trying to get uranium from Niger. All the way in July, however many months later, you have Bush and Cheney and Libby going out there and saying to the reporters, hey, our intelligence is telling us, yeah, they were yeah. trying to get uranium from Niger, so Joe Wilson's lying. Make sure you bury him. Yeah, and I, I don't even think you're being – I think you're – I know – you believe me, I know in general you're not letting them off the hook. But I think the key judgment aspect is important because although it means nothing to laymen, it means everything to reporters and policymakers. They know what that means. These things are 96 pages long. There's a lot of differing opinions in them. A key judgment is a consensus finding. Here are the main things we found. They said it was a key judgment. It was not a key judgment in any way, shape, or form. Uh, 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 and again, there are – That's what leads to the cherry-picking uh, part. Totally. They completely – cherry-picking. It right, but also leaving out, as you mentioned, the reports from the State Department and the Department of Energy that they didn't even believe it back in October of 2002. I mean, it was it wasn't clear when the White House claimed it was clear. By the time they decided to leak the information to discredit Joe Wilson, it was clear the other way. So Bush and Cheney indisputably authorized leaks or declassifications, whatever you want to call them, at a t about something they knew was not true. They knew that Iraq wasn't trying to get uh, uranium from Niger. Every analyst in the country had already told them 
three, four months ago that was the case. But they said, oh, who cares? Do it because he's a political enemy of ours. Let's lie about it and try to trick the press into writing what we know isn't true. Why did they choose this? Uh, uh, let me read this part. And this is something that Jenk has talked about again and again on the show. And it goes back to our one of our favorite little groups, the White House Iraq Group. Formed in August 2002, and the reason the White House group, the White House Iraq group, uh, formed to foster public education about Iraq's quote grave and gathering danger to the U.S. And they kept pitching the uranium story. Why did they keep pitching the uranium story? The alleged procurement, it reads, was a minor issue for most U.S. analysts. The hard part for Iraq would be enriching uranium, not obtaining the ore. And Niger's controlled market made it an unlikely seller in the first place. But the Niger story proved irresistible to speechwriters and the White House Iraq group. Most nuclear arguments were highly technical, but the public could easily grasp the link between uranium and a bomb. So they thought, let's say uranium and let's scare people and invade a country we have no business invading. And at least 40,000 people, probably many more, will die. Uh, my favorite part of that is the words public education. Public education, yeah. Otherwise known as propaganda. Yeah, hello, George Orwell. <laughs> Young Turks. You cannot lead if you send mixed messages. Here on the Rachel Maddow Show, enjoy poking a sharp stick at the soft white underbelly of the right-wing scheme machine, giving you a little peek at their political playbook. Today's right-wing political tactic is the president as king. The right-wing, I think, has gone all monarchist, all royalist on us. Uh, you will recall that on yesterday's show, I talked about the right-wing reaction to the Pulitzer Prizes, how the, uh, the blog Powerline reacted to the news that the New York Times won a Pulitzer for its reporting on the NSA spying scandal. Powerline reacted by saying that it should be the Pulitzer Prize for treason, because heaven forbid a free press, a free independent press, report on what a government is doing illegally to its own citizens in secret. What I was ranting about yesterday was that characterization of the Pulitzer from the right-wing blog world. Even though I generally like to ignore the right-wing media world and right-wing talk radio, I do have to say they picked up this trope and ran with it yesterday, and I think it's useful to check out how they are articulating it. Uh, here's Bill Bennett speaking yesterday. Here's what happened. We had reporters from the New York Times, Risen and Lickblaw, and a reporter from the Washington Post, Dana Priest, took classified information, secret information, published it in their newspapers against the wishes of the president, oh. against the request of the president no. and others that they not release it. They not only released it, they publicized it. They put it on the front page. It would have been better on page two. Uh, here's the important part of what, what Bill Bennett is saying here. Against the wishes of the president. If you're deciding the, the moral and ethical and legal or even strategic utility of reporting on secret government programs, on reporting about classified information, the one thing that really is totally irrelevant in this country to answering those questions is whether or not that disclosure is against the wishes of the president. Listen, the wishes of the president only matter if the president is not a president, but a king. Listen to how this issue plays out in, in the right-wing diatribe here. These people who reveal our secrets, who hurt our war effort, who hurt the effort of our CIA, Porter Goss, 
who hurt the efforts of the president's people, they shouldn't be given no prizes and awards for this. They shouldn't be given prizes and awards for this. They should be looked into. They should be looked into for hurting the president's people, for doing things against the president's wishes. In this country, in in the United States, the way our government works is that we don't use the power of U.S. laws, the power of the U.S. Constitution, the might of the state to redress a president's hurt feelings and to make sure that he gets his way. We have no obligation to ensure that the president gets his way. The president is actually governed by U.S. law. The president has an obligation to follow and uphold U.S. laws in the way that we do government here. And a free press is key to making sure that our president stays within the law. This line of defense that that reporters should be jailed for thwarting the will of the president. This, I think, this is it's it's pulling together a whole bunch of loose threads for me about understanding what's happening to the political right 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 now. It's the new American monarchism. They want a king. They've got a man as president who thinks he is a king, and they are making arguments again and again and again for the president to have not presidential power, but monarchical power to be a king. I think that's tying together a lot of their arguments right now that previously have never made sense. At least it is for me. Pulitzer Prize winners announced on April 18th included Dana Priest of the Washington Post, who won for her reporting on secret CIA prisons, and James Risen and Eric Lickblau of the New York Times, who won for exposing the White House's secret domestic spying program. But when CNN commentator and former Republican White House official Bill Bennett heard the news, instead of congratulating the recipients, he said the three reporters belonged in jail for their work. Speaking on his nationally syndicated radio show, Bennett said the three published classified information, quote, against the wishes of the president, close quote. With his rage growing, the former secretary of education and drug czar asked, quote, are they punished? Are they in shame? Are they embarrassed? Are they arrested? No, they win Pulitzer Prizes. They win Pulitzer Prizes. I don't think what they did was worthy of an award. I think what they did was worthy of jail. And I think this investigation needs to go forward. Close quote. Bennett's fascistic call for jailing reporters for displeasing the White House is ironic. As blogger Glenn Greenwald explained, just weeks ago on February 12th, Bennett was presenting himself as a free press advocate in a Washington Post op-ed where he and co-writer Alan Dershowitz lashed the U.S. press for not printing controversial cartoons of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. In failing to publish the cartoons, the writers somewhat redundantly proclaimed, quote, the press betrayed not only its duties, but its responsibilities, close quote. In Bill Bennett's weird world, the Bill of Rights and freedom of the press only seem to apply when he says so. Or, to paraphrase Humpty Dumpty, freedom of the press means precisely what Bill Bennett says it means, neither more nor less. In this uh, short segment that we have, we want to bring you a funny story, uh, although it's, of course, 
terrible, as most of these funny stories are that come out of the administration. For years now, we've been expressing some skepticism about how much this guy, Zarqawi in Iraq, has been hyped up. He's theoretically the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and we constantly hear about Zarqawi, the killer, and he beheaded Nick Berg, and he has a limp. No, he doesn't have a limp, and he did this, and he did that, and he did everything. And if we can just get Zarqawi, then everything's going to be all right. Uh, Sunni searches don't... Shh, shh, don't talk about that. Don't talk about this is not about Sunnis and Shia. Shh, it's all about Zarqawi. Boo! And they try to scare you with it, right? And... There was something off. There was something wrong. And we thought he was overhyped. And then they would conveniently capture all these letters that Zarqawi was having with the Al-Qaeda leadership. They'd be like, we got another letter! And Zarqawi says he's responsible for everything and that it is all the Al-Qaeda terrorists. Look away from the Sunni and Shiite insurgencies. And didn't they often catch Zarqawi at opportune times, but then we didn't really get him? We thought we'd had him pinned down and he was elusive. He got away. He's friggin' Kaiser Soze. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Uh, but he, he came up, I mean, conveniently as we geared up for the 2004 elections. Oh, of course. During the two, before the, if you notice, Jim makes a really good point there. Before the 2004 elections, Zarqawi 24/7. After elections, it died out a little bit. Not as much Zarqawi talk. Let's uh, let's read the first paragraph of the uh, story today in uh, today's Washington Post by Thomas Rex. These guys, the Washington Post man. They just, uh, I mean, like Thomas Ricks wrote two of these stories over the weekend. They're busy, and they're friggin' important, every one of these stories. Now, other than their editorial board, which is mysteriously uh, gave a bizarre okay on uh, Bush's leak the, over the weekend, uh, their reporters, their actual journalists, are kicking ass. And, by the way, the editorial board, you know, against the president 98% of the time. Uh, I think you read this one correctly. They're, they like leaks. They want leaks. They're trying to encourage leaks. That's why they're... There you, here's uh, Thomas Rich's first paragraph. The... Uh, the U.S. military is conducting a propaganda campaign to magnify the role of the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, according to internal military documents and officers familiar with the program. So I guess they're just basing it on military documents and military officers. The effort has raised his profile in a way that some military intelligence officials believe may have overstated his importance and helped the Bush administration tie the war to the organization responsible for the September 11, 2001 attack so no that couldn't be true they needed a link between 9-11 and iraq and they made one up quote the, uh, from the story the documents explicitly list the quote u.s home audience as one of the targets of a broader propaganda campaign the u.s military should not be engaged in a propaganda campaign. Here's who the U.S. military can engage in a propaganda campaign on. I'm even willing to, I think, concede this. Iraqis. Because we have to get them to like the military. I don't need the military engaging in a propaganda campaign to convince me and my dad. You know, and my friends, and Jill and Cenk. They're not supposed to, of course. No, their job As is, always, they've gone outside of the law here, outside of the bounds, outside of etiquette, outside of You want to engage rules. in a propaganda campaign, Jenk, to, uh, to highlight the good things that soldiers do and complain? Not enough coverage when we fix the waterway, when we build a school. Okay, that seems like a waste of my tax dollars, but... Go ahead, right? I'm not going to bring that up on my radio show, you know, and rail against it. 
you took a guy who was there, Abu Musad al-Zarqawi, who was a player in this, and enhanced his role dramatically to help your 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 civilian leadership in Washington, your duly elected in quotes leadership in Washington, sell a war and connect it to the gravest attack on America in its history, and pretend that the war was somehow related to that. You made this guy up. You turned him into something he wasn't. I'm curious. And you spent my money to do it. If our propaganda actually made him more powerful and more legitimate. Uh, if it actually helped him. That's a good question, Jill. Uh, and it turns out Zarqawi is such a minor player in the insurgency that it didn't really do much. Now, they say towards the end of the piece, hey, no, and we put it up on the website, too, um, so you can read it yourself. They say, well, it might have actually helped in some ways because it set the Iraqis against Zarqawi, and they've been having fights lately. But I read other stories where they were saying they're having fights over extortion rings that they've both set up in the Anbar province. So I don't think that really had anything to do with it. He, now, of course, without the propaganda campaign, Zarqawi has become the largely irrelevant figure that he is. Let me give you a quote from the meeting where they discuss the propaganda. Quote, our own focus on Zarqawi has enlarged his caricature, if you will, made him more important than he really is in some ways. So they knew what they were doing. The documents explicitly list the U.S. home audience as one of the targets of a broader propaganda campaign. Your military engaged in a propaganda campaign to convince you of something that isn't true. The world's locked up in your head. You've been pouring it a concrete bed. Your habits are suffice. You don't read... Uh, second story on the front page today is about Kafka. Vaguely, it, it's about our Kafkaesque government and uh, how we as citizens uh, can get our heads around how to confront what our government is doing in our name at this point. Uh, it's a story of two guys who have been in prison at Guantanamo since 2001. Now, hold on just a second. I know you're thinking, Maddo, you know, geez, more women's underwear on the head, mistreatment of Guantanamo prisoner stories. Come on, it's Tuesday morning. I'm depressed about my taxes. I don't want to hear it. I have to tell you. Hold on. This is not one of those stories, though I do reserve the right to talk to you about the women's underwear on the head thing in the future, for the record. But today's front page story is specifically about these two guys um, who are living in Guantanamo basically as guests now, guests of you and I, since we're paying for them to be there. This is such a strange story. Um, Two Chinese men were picked up either in Afghanistan or Pakistan, depending on which news source you read, in 2001. These guys were Chinese Muslims, uh, and they were from their, their, where, they were, where they were born, where their home, their home base was, it was a semi-autonomous western region in China, where the Chinese government persecutes uh, their minority group, which is called the Uyghur. 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 Yes, uh, it's it's, it's U-I-G-H-U-R. Um, they're Uyghurs. And like dozens of other people sent to Guantanamo, the U.S. military looked at these guys' case, looked at the circumstances under which which they were picked up, looked at what they knew about these guys' lives, lives, and said, you know, our bad. These guys are not enemy combatants, not the enemy. They're not terrorists. They're not criminals. They're not even witnesses that we need to talk to about somebody else's crimes or suspicions. They're not suspects in any crime. They're not suspects of terrorism. Nothing. We screwed up. They're innocent. They're not enemy combatants. They ought not be here, and we don't want to bring any other sort of charges against them. More than 50 other people have been sent home from Guantanamo after the U.S. decided that they also were not enemy combatants. But these guys, these two guys, who the U.S. admits, have, we have no right to keep in prison. 
These guys have nowhere to go because their home country of China isn't interested in taking them. It's persecuting their ethnic minority group. They do not want to go back to China. No other countries will take them. And even though we took them to Guantanamo, we took them in 2001 out of their free lives and brought them to Guantanamo. Now, we, the United States of America, will not take them either. The Supreme Court yesterday, believe it or not, declined to hear these guys' case. So they are still in prison. More than a year after the U.S. decided that they pose no threat to the U.S. and shouldn't be held anymore. Now, the Bush administration weighed in and told the Supreme Court that they shouldn't take these guys' case. They shouldn't hear the, hear, hear the appeal. Bush administration attorneys argued that uh, since being ruled as non-enemy combatants, these guys, uh, you know, don't have it that bad at Guantanamo, even though they're there as prisoners. He says that they said that they've been segregated from the, the general population of Guantanamo prisoners. They're allowed to kick a soccer ball around a tiny field and they're allowed to watch videos so the difference between them being free and them being imprisoned at guantanamo has really been blurred by the fact that they're allowed to kick a soccer ball and watch videos that's the argument from the bush administration supreme court said really videos soccer a tiny field okay we hear you we don't want to hear these guys case there, there are people of this minority group, Uyghurs, who live in the Washington, D.C. area, who have offered these guys jobs and housing, but the White House will not let them in. It's keeping them at Guantanamo as prisoners for what it admits is no reason. They're just indefinite prisoners, considered innocent, there forever, with no recourse, held by our government. This is like a freaking horror movie. It's a horror movie for them. It's a horror movie for us. Because this is our government doing this in our name. I submit to you that perhaps it is time to get a new government. Tell me if there's something I can do. Because lately all I'm thinking of is you. So I tried to write you a love song, but all the music came out wrong. So I hope that you dance along. I hope that you dance along with me. It's time to welcome our first listener contestant. Hi, you're on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hi, I'm Jill from Sand Springs, Oklahoma. Sand Springs, Oklahoma? Where is that exactly? We're right next to Tulsa. Right next to Tulsa. You're Tulsa adjacent. Is is, Is there sand and or springs in Sand Springs, Oklahoma? So the sand was fact, the spring was hope. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Well, welcome to the show, Jill. Let me introduce you to our panel this week. First, say hello to a writer, performer, and author of the forthcoming novel, Schrodinger's Ball, Mr. Adam Felber. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you? Great. Say hello also to deputy editor of the Houston Chronicle, Ms. Kiri O'Connor. Hi. Hi, Jill. Also say hello to humorist and author, Mr. Tom Bodette. Hi, Tom. Hello, Jill. Jill, welcome to our show. I'm so excited to be on. Well, we're excited to have you. You are going to start us off by playing a round of Who's Carl this time. Of course, Carl Castle right here. Yeah. He's going to recreate, using his amazing mimicry skills, some quotes from the week's news. Your job, of course, explain or identify them. Do that two times out of three. You will win Carl's voice in your home answering machine. I am ready. Okay, here is your first quote. Our answer to those who are angry about us obtaining the full nuclear cycle is one phrase. 
Be angry and die of this anger. That was the president of a country that just threw a big celebration to mark their entry into the nuclear club. What country? Would that be Iran? That would be. Yay! This week, Iran actually threw a public televised party to celebrate their successful enrichment of nuclear fuel. The party had dancers in traditional Persian costumes holding aloft cylinders of uranium gas while doves were released in the background. This was true. It was a non-stop uranium enrichment dance party. It was great. It was uranium palooza. <laughs> it is amazing to me because, you know, the entire international community, not just the United States, is saying, Iran, do not enrich this fuel. And they're like, you mean like this? <laughs> You, this is the thing I shouldn't do? You know. <laughs> I don't know if you can apply the word chutzpah to Iranians, but I'm going to. <laughs> you shouldn't. That would annoy them even more, I yeah. know. <laughs> All right. Jill, your, your next quote, it's actually a collection of quotes. It's sort of a greatest hits, if you will. It's our way of saying goodbye to one of our favorite people who seems to be leaving the world stage. Mussolini never killed anyone. Mussolini used to send people on vacation in internal exile. And? Another reason to invest in Italy is that we have beautiful secretaries, superb girls. And? I am the Jesus Christ of politics. Right there is why we here on this show will miss this individual. His life in politics took a big blow this week. Who are we talking about? Is it the Prime Minister? Of? Of Italy. And his name is? Silvio Bersoloni. <laughs> Close enough. Silvio Berlusconi. Thank you. The outspoken billionaire Italian prime minister seems to have lost the national elections by a tiny fraction of a percent. In fact, the vote was so close that Berlusconi refused to concede. But Romano Prodi who led the center-left coalition known as the comparatively we seem sane party <laughs> plans to be sworn in as prime minister soon apparently after the election all parties came together in sort of a national reconciliation because as one Italian newspaper put it they were afraid of becoming quote another Florida <laughs> True. which is great because we see that once again we in the US inspire the world <laughs> We can't be another giant peninsula of embarrassment. Exactly. <laughs> Here's one thing. As we say goodbye to Berlusconi, I think, because, you know, they might have to drag him out of the office literally by his feet. Um, I just want to point out, we've been making fun of him for years, but because this is radio, we cannot make fun of the fact that although he is a billionaire and one of the most powerful people in Europe in business or politics, one of the very worst hair transplant jobs you've ever seen in your life. It looks like a desiccated cornfield up there. <laughs> Those little stumps all in rows. And You know how uh, Churchill, after he left uh, power, he came to the United States and uh, actually made quite a, quite a name for himself on the speaking tour and became uh, quite the diplomat on the world stage. I wonder if Berlusconi could could follow up on that. Uh, I'm not merely the president of Italy. I'm the president of the hair club for the men. 
Yeah, see, I think the lesson you've got to drive there is if you're going to get really bad plugs, don't dye them a goofy color. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's worth knowing. All right, Jill, you're doing great. Here is your last quote. Maybe uh, to some extent, 80 is the new 40. Isn't it pretty to think so? That was a famous playboy who celebrated his 80th birthday this week. Who? Oh, 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 I should know this. Well, I shouldn't know it because I'm a kindergarten <laughs> No, just give us the answer. We won't tell. Hugh Hefner. Yes, Hugh Hefner. Now I can't play this for my kindergarten class. I'll have to pretend like Playboy means something else. Exactly. The octogenarian king of the Playboy empire... It's amazing. ...says, as you would expect, that it's his three very blonde and very young girlfriends who keep him young. He says, quote, I think being connected to younger people helps to keep you young and gives you a young attitude. Uh, I'm a little disturbed by this. If 80 is the new 40, um, as a man of uh, 50... I'm still looking forward to puberty. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is amazing that he is finally older than the number of years he set women back. So <laughs> Carol, how did Jill do in our quiz? Very, very well, Peter. Jill, you had three correct answers. You win our prize. Very well done. Congratulations, Jill. Thank This is Cenk Uger from the Young Turks on the Best of the Left podcast. If you like what you hear, please go to our website, theyoungturks.com, where you can watch the show every day from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also participate in discussion forums or live chat with the Young Turks fans. And you can support liberal political programming by becoming a TYT member or by purchasing Young Turks merchandise. All that at theyoungturks.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you like what you hear, I would greatly appreciate if you'd help me promote the show probably the easiest way is uh, if you're set up on myspace.com already you can come and join me at myspace.com slash best of the left podcast and when you do that uh, you know bring some friends with you it's it's real easy you know when you go to my page you get to hear the promo and everything and gives people a little taste of uh, what the show is like um the other thing you can do is join me over at uh, my Frapper Map community. That's at frapper.com slash best of the left podcast. And that's a great place to go just to, uh, you know, join in, uh, show your face a little bit, introduce yourself. And then there's a message board there where all the listeners of the show, as well as myself, uh, can engage in a little bit of a conversation. So, um, and of course, I've made it easy by posting links to both of those places at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. It's it's hard to miss. So, um, either of those things you want to do, go for it. I uh, would appreciate it very much. And um, of course, you can contact me directly. For more details on that or anything else at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Talk to you guys later. Have a good one.